The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Thank you all for joining us today. My name is Toral Patel, and you are listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me and Anthony on our final episode for this season of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Anthony, how are you feeling today? Uh, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling that winter is already here. Winter is not coming anymore. It is here. So that's where I'm at today. Yes, definitely. Um, I actually feel like the weather's not so bad today. <laughs> not today, but I think <laughs> the temperature and, you know, it definitely feels like winter <laughs> for me, at least. Yeah, the, the leaves have now fallen and it's starting to get oh, yeah, much they've, colder. They've been falling, yeah. So this episode concludes season two of the podcast, which is why I'm excited to introduce our very special guest to wrap up this season. She is the person who is a force and always behind the scenes advocating for diversity, inclusion, and belonging for staff here at Cornell. You may have seen her around campus, but you may not know much about her, which is why we invited the Associate Vice President for Inclusion and Workforce Diversity, Angela Winfield, on today's episode. Angela, thank you so much for taking the time to be a guest on today's episode. Why don't you start by sharing with our listeners a little bit about yourself, about your role here at Cornell, and the pronouns that you use. Absolutely, Anthony. It's my pleasure to be here with you. So as you said, I'm the Associate Vice President for Inclusion and Workforce Diversity here at Cornell. I'm also one of the Presidential Advisors on Diversity and Equity, um, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Thank you for sharing, Angela. So we have our question of the day that Toral is going to ask, but before we do that, I just want to say I can't believe we're already on episode 15 of the podcast. So it's like our quinceanera episode. So for those of you mm -hmm. who don't know what a quinceanera is, it is a rite of passage for a lot of Latina women as they transition from childhood to adulthood. 15 is kind of like the prime age in which they do it. So this is our transition now from childhood, adolescence, to now adulthood. Happy 15th for us. Yay. Happy 15. <laughs> so, I mean, I've had a blast doing these episodes and, and doing these recordings. So I'm just really excited for what's to come in the future. But yeah, it's been really insightful. And I just love interviewing all the staff that we have here at Cornell because we do have so much diversity just in terms of experiences that people can share and have shared on this podcast. So I am very excited as well. This is my third official episode, not quite at the 15 that we're celebrating, but I'm very excited to see where this is going to go for the next season. I think it's wonderful. So obviously, I've been around since the podcast started and to see how it's grown and evolved. And I know we've had transition, but it's all been very good. And it's wonderful hearing both your development and growth and also just hearing the wonderful stories from our staff, because you're right, there is such rich diversity in experiences and backgrounds amongst our staff. And it's just wonderful to have a platform to highlight that. Well, before we get further into that conversation and other questions that we have, we want to go back to the question of the day. So, Toro, I'm going to hand it to you to ask your very first. This is podcast. my first question of the day. I'm very excited. So in the interest of getting to know Angela a little bit better, and I think, Anthony, I want to get to know you a little bit better as well. My question of the day is, do either one of you have a life motto that you live by? And if yes, would you share it with us? 
Wow, that is a really good question. Yes, I I love quotes, so I have so many life mottos, but Mm. I won't share first. (laughs) Angela, do you want to go first? Okay, put me on the spot. Um, (laughs) So I guess my life motto, I don't know that I have a particular one. Well, actually, there's probably a couple that come to mind for me. One is I'll try anything twice. Right. And that's my motto around food, but it's also my motto around experiences. The first time it's always going to be scary and uncomfortable. The second time you might decide, you know what, this is actually really fun or I like the way this goes. Um, So I'll try anything at least twice. Another motto that I live by, it's not really a motto more than it is a guiding principle. So it's the serenity prayer, actually. So, you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So that's one that I've always carried with me. It was actually on a vase on my mother's dressing table when I was a child, and I used to read it, and I was like, something about it just resonated with me, and it's something that I've come back to time and time again in my life. Wow. That is, yeah, that is a great motto. Anthony, how about you? So I I have a lot of mottos, but I say mottos because they're really quotes. And so I just have always been appealed to just quotes and song lyrics, especially. And so the two that I can think of are actually song lyrics. And one of them is, if it's bitter at the start, then it's sweeter in the end. So Mm -hmm. it's a song lyric from a Madonna song. It's my favorite Madonna song. It's called Get Together. And for me, I think in hearing particularly the the part in which she says that it's at the very end and it's like very slow. And I think it just kind of reminds me of, you know, if things are tough in life, just remember that, you know, all of the sacrifice, all of these challenging moments are only going to make you stronger. Right. Which goes to another life motto that my sister told me is that you can let every situation either make you or break you. So which one are you going to choose? So I think about that one a lot, especially when I'm going through those challenging moments and saying like, Yes, I can let this make me or break me, but I'm not going to let it break me. I'm going to make it make me. Historically speaking, after hearing that quote that my sister told me, I always try to flip every negative into a positive. Mm -hmm. And then the most personal one that I actually have tattooed on me, on my body, on my arm, is always remember you will live, you will love, and you will dance again. And so that's from a J-Lo song called Dance Again. Yes, it's my favorite J-Lo song. (laughs) (laughs) But I just remembered the particular time period in which I got that tattooed on me and It was a very dark time, I would say, in just that short period in which I got the tattoo. And so when I got it, I just felt so liberated. And I was like, oh, yes, like I need to remember that I'm always going to live and I'm always going to love and I'm going to dance again. And I love love. I'm a hopeless romantic. Or some people would say other variations of it like J-Lo. But yes, so that's one that I always go back to, too. And every time I see it, I always think like I've come a long way since I got it, you know? Yeah. So. So for me, um, I think the, the three or four that kind of stand out is one is um, look for the silver lining. Right? It's always there even when you can't quite see it. If you look for it, you'll find it. The second one is assume positive intent, that the intentions are always great, even if the outcome is not necessarily <laughs> what you expect. And the third one that I, especially in, when I deal with people, is that you never know what somebody has going on in their life. So Uh, Again, I think that goes with the assuming positive intent that just keeping that in mind in every interaction is important to me that I just never know like what else that person is dealing with. And then personally, 
from a cultural perspective, I believe in kismet, like the whole concept around that is that things will just fall into place the way they're supposed to fall into place. And so I live my life very stress-free. I'm like, yeah, it'll just, it'll happen as it happens the way it's supposed to happen. And no matter how much stress I put on myself or on others, that is not going to change. So I have a very, um, like a laid back attitude because of that philosophy. So even when it comes to my kids, I'm like, yeah, they'll figure it out. Like that's the the only job they have right now because I've got, I've got everything else taken care of. So they will figure out what they're supposed to figure out. So, all right. So thanks, Angela. That's awesome. And Anthony, for sharing your thoughts. That is my first question of the day. I'm kind of excited to think about new ones for future. Um, But Angela, in the interest of getting to know you, we actually have quite a few questions for you. So maybe the first question we can start with is, um, how did you begin your career here at Cornell? So I began my career as a law student, actually, way back when I came here and I studied. Um, And I really enjoyed my time here, and I ended up staying somewhat local, right? After graduating law school, I went and I was practicing law, and then I decided to return in a different role and a different kind of function. All right. And so how did you get into um, D&I work, diversity and inclusion work? So that's more of an interesting story. I came into diversity and inclusion work in an indirect kind of path, you know, as a person with my identity. So I am a cisgender female, but I am black. I'm a woman and I'm also blind. So I have an obvious disability and I didn't always have an obvious disability. It's something I came into during my life as I got older. It was always a part of me, right? And it was a part that I didn't always embrace. So like through high school, college, that kind of time frame, it was something that I didn't know how to accept. It was there, right? But I didn't want it to define me. I still don't think it defines me, but it is an important part of how I view and experience the world. But I didn't want it to define me. So I was always a little bit resistant to like delving deeply into diversity and inclusion. I was one of those people I wanted to be seen and viewed for everything else that I was, for mm-hmm. my talents and my merit. And the longer I live, because as I, I think the longer you live, the wiser you get and the more experience you have, um, there's no separating it, right? It, it was very obvious that my identities were something that really shape how I interact with other people, how I'm viewed, and I couldn't escape it. And it, it got to be to a point where I didn't want to escape it. I really wanted to engage with people and understand how and why it was they were interacting with me differently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that I was probably the first person like myself that they ever engaged with, that they ever worked with on the professional realm. And I got really, really curious to know what's that like? What does it take to go outside your comfort zone to develop a working relationship with someone like myself? And so that's how I started to get into it. I started doing some work when I was in college around it. And I also started doing more work once I got into the legal profession itself, being on diversity and inclusion committees within my law firm and within bar associations. And even when I was taking on leadership roles in my community, um, I served on a multiple not-for-profit boards, I realized that I had a very unique perspective. And I would you know, really be cheating my community and cheating the organizations that I was serving if I didn't bring that perspective to the table. So that's how I kind of got into the diversity and inclusion space. There are a lot of attorneys out there and a lot of great ones. I like to consider myself probably a pretty good one, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but there's a there's so many. But I did bring a very unique perspective in terms of the DNI space, and I thought that's where, that's where I could really deliver value. That's so interesting. I, I love I love hearing that story, especially because I I think about sometimes too what would I be doing if I weren't doing DNI work? 
And it's hard because I have so many multiple intersecting identities that I'm just like, like you said, Angela, it, people view me in these categories and these identities and I'm just like, I feel like I can't escape it. So why not just entertain it and like try to make change and advocate for change? So thank you for sharing that. Angela, I'm curious, what sparked your interest in attending law school? So even though I probably come off as calm and kind of uh, mild-mannered, and I definitely am an introvert, um, that's for sure, I really love arguing. (laughs) Um, I (laughs) I love love a good debate. I love to take perspectives. And this goes back even to childhood, and I can probably thank my father for this because he loved debates too. I mean, he would just, you know, pick another side, not because he believed it, but just because it was fun, you know? (laughs) So we would get into it and we'd have these great conversations and debates. And then sometimes it was, you know, real arguments. But he made me and he forced me to be able to articulate why I wanted something. If I asked, he said, Dad, I really want to go. I want to study abroad. I want to do this thing. He's like, well, why? Why should, why should I why should I support you in that <laughs> you know and wow. and you know and you know and he wasn't doing it to be mean or difficult but he really forced me to advocate for myself and I loved doing that um, and probably not so much for myself that's not true so with him I'd advocate for myself where I really kind of shown and what drew me to the law is advocating for other people because when I first started thinking that I wanted to be a lawyer I was very very young but once I started to learn more it was much easier for me to speak about other people and to stand up for other people. Now, in, goodness, probably all the way through, probably halfway through college, once I lost my sight, that's when I started to not be shy. So I'm still introverted. But when I was in you know, primary, secondary school and stuff like that, I was painfully shy, painfully shy. I was mm. quiet. There would be days I'd go to school and I would not speak at all. To anyone. Wow. Um, yeah. So I'm talking. Sh- I'm talking like really, <laughs> really, really shy. Um, you know, did not engage. Was very withdrawn. But if I were given a topic to debate on or present on, I could do that. I could do that, and I was very comfortable doing that. Why do you think that was the case? Where it was when it was about you and getting putting yourself out there that you were shy, but when it was just a random topic that you weren't. A part of it is I wasn't ready to be seen, right? I, was, I wasn't ready to be seen. I was very insecure. I lacked confidence in myself. I didn't lack confidence in my abilities. You know, I, I knew I was very smart and talented as a student. I knew that I was good at certain things. And a lot of it was self-worth mm-hmm. um, or lack thereof. So I didn't use those things for myself. I used it for other people. How did you feel um, leaving the law behind, the the part that you enjoyed so much, which was the arguing and then ultimately um, advocating for others and now focusing on a different career path? Mm-hmm. So it was um, the right transition at the right time. So, mm-hmm. you know, I call the legal profession my selfish career because I was doing it because those are all the things I love to do. And diversity and inclusion is my career of service. So I do a lot of advocating. It's a different style of advocating. It's not adversarial advocating. You know, so as a litigator, you know, you've got a side and you're, you're representing it and you're arguing. In diversity and inclusion, I still feel like an advocate. I'm advocating for inclusion, right? It's mm-hmm. really, really important to me that folks have an opportunity not only to work, and that's kind of one of my things, like I, I am grateful for the opportunity to 
be able to work. That's you know, something that's um, really dear to me. Not everyone has that opportunity or can do it. So I think when you do have the opportunity to work, when you show up, you should be able to bring your full self, your authentic self. So I advocate for that. So I think there's a lot of foundation work that being an attorney and having legal training has helped me with in this role. So speaking of authenticity, you know, it's I think it's something that I for sure have been reading a lot about in terms of the workplace. How does this look like? How does authenticity as well as belonging? Right. These are kind of new terminology within the DNI space and the world that that keeps coming up regularly. So how would you define authenticity in the workplace? Like, what does that look like? So I define authenticity in the workplace as meaning that you can bring and I, I say this, you know, carefully and thoughtfully, meaning that you can bring you and your perspectives to the work, right? That you're not trying to cover, right? That you don't need to cover, right? That you can share and speak in a way that resonates with you, um, that you're able to provide and contribute to the work without feeling burdened. And what I mean by that is lots of times when people from marginalized backgrounds are in a space where they're the minority, it's work, right? Like you're you're doing extra things to compensate, to be seen as an equal. It's exhausting. It's exhausting, right? So when I think of authenticity, I think of showing up in a way where you're free to be you. Does that mean that you can bring, as one of my colleagues says, you can't bring your weekend self to work, right? So <laughs> like, like weekend Angela can't, can't come to work. But, you know, bringing enough of me where I still feel like I'm being me, that I'm not expending extra energy to try and be something that I'm not or someone that I'm not. That's authenticity. I appreciate that response, Angela, because I feel like with this season so far, with a lot of the topics that we've discussed, it's a lot of it, I would say, according to your definition, is really about authenticity, right? And how people can show up authentically when it comes to hair and when it comes to imposter syndrome, when it comes to being a veteran, right? So given that, you know, this is the season finale, what have been your thoughts and reflections on the conversations that we've had thus far? So, I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but... I think going in depth and going into the future, right, what are kind of some of your takeaways? So I've been really impressed and moved by the conversations that you've been having on the podcast thus far. It's been really interesting, and I mean that in a good way, to hear people's experiences, right? I mean, that's the most important thing. Like when I think about diversity and inclusion and all of the work that we do, um, we talk about climate stuff, we talk about belonging. It's really about the experience, right? Like, you know, what is the thing, what's happening for people on a day-to-day? And I think that you're starting to get to some of that in the podcast. So I'm really excited to see more of that as you move forward and to you know learn more about what people are experiencing so that we can improve that experience because it's really easy when you're you know here at Cornell you're an employee and I don't want to say you feel alone right but you feel like is anyone else experiencing this mm-hmm. right you know what is this like that's how the way I felt with the imposter syndrome episodes that you did it's kind of like this thing where you're stuck and it's it's your experience but it's not, right? Other people experience this too. That doesn't make it right. To me, that makes it more of an imperative that we do something to improve the experience. So I think these conversations are really helpful to kind of open people's eyes to the varied experiences that are going on here. 
Now, keeping that in mind, um, can you share some information on what our staff here at Cornell should expect um, when it comes to DNI initiatives for 2020? Sure. Yeah. So the big thing um, that is going on right now in this you know, fall semester has been the launch of Belonging at Cornell, the new institutional framework for thinking about diversity and inclusion, in particular for the faculty and staff population, where we're looking at doing a climate survey, a very brief, like it's a different climate survey than the ones we've done in the past. I know we've done climate surveys before. Right. right? So it's kind of like people are like, oh, another climate survey. The difference with this one is that we're really using the metrics to drive change. So from my side of the shop, the staff side, and with the Department of Inclusion and Workforce Diversity, skill development behavior change, you know, those are the things that really impact the experience. You know, how are people engaging on a day-to-day basis? What are those microaggressions? What are those microaffirmations that we can help people engage in more consciously? And by more consciously, the microaffirmations piece, not the microaggressions piece, right? Yes. But helping people realize that um, their behavior makes a difference in experience. So I would say looking more at action, right? And taking some of this awareness and translating it into real tangible things that each and every one of us can do to improve the experience of our colleagues. So Angela, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Belonging at Cornell framework, the new diversity framework. Can you talk a little bit more about what the metrics are that we will be measuring within the new framework? Absolutely. So first and foremost, I want to recognize Towards New Destinations and TND because that was the framework that existed before Belonging at Cornell. And Belonging at Cornell is an evolution of that foundational work. Very good work across campus that was done. And just by building on that, we've focused in on you know some areas where we could improve and we've developed Belonging at Cornell. So it's a metrics-driven approach. And the five metrics are as follows. We have some climate metrics, the sense of belonging. So this is self-reported in surveys from our faculty and staff population. So do I feel like I belong? The sense of organizational fairness and what is called the net promoter score. So would you recommend Cornell to an employee. Those are the three metrics that we will be tracking through surveys. Then we have some compositional metrics that we're looking at, our turnover rates, as well as our proportionate hiring rates. And the hope is that we're going to be analyzing this data. Uh, It's a confidential survey. We're going to be looking at the metrics at the university level to get a baseline, but we're also looking at it at the college and unit level to see what the differences or challenges are in those areas, and then developing targeted initiatives to move the needle on each of those metrics. Angela, you just shared the five metrics with us. And so can you talk about this concept? For me, I look at those climate metrics as very individualized to each person here at Cornell, each staff member, each faculty member. So how do you move a framework forward when each metric is so individualized and subjective? Yeah, that's a great question. Part of it is that they're intentionally subjective, right? Because again, it's about the experience and each experience is individualized. But to think about that and give a little bit of consistency. So when we talk about belonging, it's a subjective feeling, right? But it's not belonging to Cornell. It's a feeling of going back to authenticity, right? I feel like I belong here enough that I can be myself. I feel 
comfortable enough in the workplace. Um, I feel like that this is a right kind of a place for me to be where I can give my best. That's kind of the way that I think about belonging. But yes, it's meant to be subjective because people's experiences are subjective. The same thing with fairness. There's a little bit more consistency around that because people know what fairness is and they know when things are unfair, more importantly. So, you know, it's the kind of things, you know, how are uh, resources allocated? How are assignments, work assignments distributed? Are you getting enough opportunities? Do you feel like that's all equitable? And then the recommendation, again, that's really subjective as well, but purposefully subjective, right? Because if you are not willing to recommend Cornell to someone like yourself or to recommend Cornell as a good workplace, that really tells us a lot, right? It means that you're here, but you may not want or think that this is the right kind of place for a friend or family member or someone that you care about. So it's really good information to have because people act on their feelings. So we want to know what those subjective feelings are. The other thing I should probably say about the framework, so these metrics we are planning to roll out a survey campus-wide for faculty and staff in spring of 2020. So that is our plan for how we're going to move this forward. Um, it's going to be an institution-wide survey that then we will be analyzing and providing recommendations on. Yeah, so I'm actually getting really excited to work with you on that initiative. Now, having said that, what do you think some of our challenges will be in you know, continuing to uh, move the new belonging at Cornell framework forward and what some of our general challenges are on campus. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, one thing is change is hard, right? Change is always difficult. There are some folks who really embrace it and are you know, ready to go and let's move it, let's see what happens. There are other folks who are going to be like, well, why are we doing something different? Right, so I'm fully expecting that we're going to have that dynamic there. Another challenge that we're going to have is, and I think rightfully so, there's going to be some skepticism, right? There's going to be some people who are like, you know, is this just another framework, right? They're going to sit back and they want to wait and see what happens with it. So I'm fully expecting that. That's going to be a challenge as well. I think one that we're, you know, ready and prepared to deal with and engage folks on. But it's going to be engaging people in a new way, right? and hoping to make progress, right? Some of this is also a bit of an experiment. That's what I like to say, right? We're a research institute at Cornell. Um, We do research and experimentation in all sorts of areas. And that's the kind of thinking that's required for this type of work that we're doing. So we're going to have some failures. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's going to be a challenge because some people are going to see a failure and be like, oh, it's not working or this didn't go wrong. No, that's that's a learning, right? That's a learning. What can we take from that so we can do something better the next time? So I think the challenge is going to be that progress is probably going to be somewhat slow, right? We're not going to change it overnight. We're not going to change it in a year. But getting people to understand why we're doing what we're doing and that they play a role and getting them engaged. So I think that's kind of what I'm expecting. So one of the things that really stood out to me in what you just shared, Angela, was talking about expecting failure. Mm -hmm. Can you flesh that out a little bit more and kind of describe what does that look like? Because I think oftentimes, especially doing DNI work, we fear failure the most. We heard it in the imposter syndrome episode. We've heard, you know, we've heard it throughout this entire season. So when you say expecting failure, what what should we and what just, do we mean by that? Yeah, and just to add to that, it's also a message that we've also we've heard from President Pollock multiple times, too, is to take that chance. And so can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, Sure. So obviously we don't want big failure, right? We don't want you to... Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> we, we <don't>, we, <laughs> that wouldn't be good either, right? We, don't, we, want, we want, you know, reasonable meaning. Like, if you're going to try something new, if we're going to do a new initiative, 
it might not go as planned, right? It might not be as Mm -hmm. successful. So for instance, in our space, like with a training, we might say, you know what, let's try this, you know, new style or format of training. Let's, you know, do a topic that we've never covered before. And we go and we do it and we take a survey and people are like, no, that wasn't effective, right? Does it feel good? No, right? I Um, know it doesn't feel good. (laughs) (laughs) Because chances are I'm probably facilitating. (laughs) Right. But I will be there for you. Right. Yes. And, you know, and it's like, and it's okay, fine. It's it's not going to feel good. We'll wallow in it a little bit. Right. And then we're going to pick ourselves up and we're going to say, okay, so what do we need to do? Because we're doing things with the best of intention. But as we know, right, intention and impact, two different things. Uh So if we're not having the impact, how do we change it? Right. How do we change what we're doing and like just get really, really curious and look at this as, you know, no one has solved this problem yet. Right. No one has solved it. What makes us think that right out of the gate, the first thing that we try is going to work? It's not. Right. You've got to be able to experiment a little bit, to tweak things a little bit, you know, change it up and move and kind of, you know, be playful with it, even though it's very serious and important. There's no reason why we can't bring an element of fun and, you know, let's try it and see if it works. Because if it works, it's great. If it doesn't work, you know, hopefully we haven't caused any more harm, right? Right, right. But, and, you know, but we've learned that that doesn't work, right? So let's do something different. So that's what I mean when I say expect that we're going to have some failures. Not everything's going to move us forward, but even learning what doesn't move us forward is still moving forward. So, Angela, I've noticed that this conversation, we've talked a lot about the work and diversity and inclusion, but I also want to get to know you a little bit better as well. We want the listeners to know a little bit about you. So as we're wrapping up this conversation, what's something that maybe somebody wouldn't know about you by just looking at you that you'd want to share to our listeners? Oh, Anthony. <laughs> I see oh. what you did there. You know, you're pivoting from talking about yourself. You know, now that, now that you shared it, now I'm like, oh, I got to bring this back. Now that she's uh, mentioned she's an introvert. Yes, and then she doesn't like talking about herself when the podcast, you know. Mm-hmm. So, something that people wouldn't know about me by looking at me. Oh, goodness. Um, there's probably a few things, and I know both of you know this. So, I'm a huge foodie. I love trying new foods. doesn't matter what it is. It could be haute cuisine. It could be ethnic street food. I love it all, and I'll try it all. Another thing is that I, I love music, all different genres of music, and I've been to a number of different concerts that no one would probably ever believe. So I think you, we talked about this a little bit. So I've been to everything from Santana to Metallica to Snoop Dogg to Nine Inch Nails and, like, all, all over the place. <laughs> How is Nine Inch Nails? I've heard great things about uh, their concerts. No. No? No. Okay, okay. No. I, I mean, that was one of the concerts. And I've seen Prince, too. That was the best concert. Oh, mm-hmm. Prince. Prince. I can, yeah, Prince. I can yeah, imagine. That was yes. amazing. Um, and Paul McCartney, I put that up there. But no, Nine Inch Nails was interesting because there was very little interaction with the audience. Like, when mm-hmm. I go to a concert, like, I want them to talk to me. Oh, I want right, them, you right, know, yeah, I want yeah. something a little uh-huh. different. I want to engage and I don't know if it was just the concert or, you know, if Trent was off that day or, you know, what the deal was. <laughs> but it was very much like I could have just stayed home and played the CD. I think he maybe said two words to the oh, audience. Yeah, yeah. And I was just no. like, yeah, no. Nope. So. 
When it comes to food, though, mm-hmm. favorite type of food, favorite restaurant, a memorable favorite experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, I I don't play favorites. <laughs> okay, okay. I don't play favorites. favorites I, lo- I love it all. I love it all. Um, but some really memorable experiences. You know, I love tasting options, and even if they don't have a tasting option at a restaurant, and what I mean by that is like where it's chef's choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I love when a chef cooks for me, right? Like they get to express themselves through their ingredients um, and they prepare something with love and thought for me. Like I just, I will appreciate that all day. And it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, at a really fancy restaurant or one of the best meals I've had actually. My husband and I housed a baseball player, minor league baseball player, because we live in Auburn. So it's the Auburn Double Days. Mm -hmm. And um, Juan was from the Dominican Republic. And he stayed with us, and he's like, I'll cook for you. I'll cook for you. Right? And I said, okay. And he made this amazing mofongo. And I was just oh, like, oh. So, mofongo. like, yes. So, yes. yes. <laughs> so, just anything prepared with love and, like, that comes from the chef's heart. I, I love that. Oh, that's great. I yeah. love a good mofongo, honestly. Oh. So, you know mofongo is? I don't know. Oh, you, have to, like, you have to educate me. Honestly, I, I don't even know how to describe it in English, but it's essentially this dish that has, like, plantains and it has like a ton of other stuff inside of it all like mixed together so I, that's not even a good description of it honestly but yeah it's just I'm like a, that tells me nothing Anthony it, it's, it's a flavorful dish that <laughs> contains plantain as like one of the bases okay. of the dish but people make it differently they'll add different things but a good mofongo is a good mofongo and you know you will have a good mofongo mm-hmm. when you taste it so all right yes mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go mm-hmm. and yeah. he made it in my kitchen that was the other thing I was like right. I did not know I had right. it. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> that I had these ingredients <laughs> We could do this here like this. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when it comes to food, I think I've also shared with the two of you that we are a a cook from scratch household. We make everything from scratch in my household as well. And so I, I hear you on that. So, Angela, we really appreciate you coming in today and sharing information about yourself and the new diversity framework here at Cornell. To end our conversation, I would just like to ask you a question. It's the same question that we ask of all of our guests. If you could give one piece of advice to anyone interested in getting involved in DNI work or DNI efforts, what would you suggest? And this could be within their own department, at the college level, at the university level. And this can go all different directions, and I can give way more than one piece of advice. But I guess if I could give two pieces of advice, <laughs> um, one would be do it, right? Mm-hmm. To you know definitely get engaged and get involved. And the other is a reminder about what we talked about with making mistakes and failing, right? So you're not going to get it perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why I tell everyone, you're not going to, this is not about being perfect or getting it perfect. None of us get it perfect. I don't get it perfect, right? Um, but knowing that the fact that you're engaging and trying to make a difference and doing better, that's where the improvement comes from. So my advice is get engaged, try it, be forgiving, be kind to yourself as you go through this, but definitely engage. Thank you all for listening to today's episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a comment, a review, and like us on SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts to let people know about us. Also, if you or a fellow colleague would like to be interviewed for an upcoming episode on Season 3 of the podcast, please email us at ie-academy at cornell.edu. My name is Anthony Sis. My name is Toral Patel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. 
stay tuned for Season 3 beginning on February 5th, 2020. A special shout-out and thank you to Bert Odom-Reed, our sound engineer from the Cornell Broadcast Studio, for making us sound wonderful each and every episode. Thank, thank you, Bert! Bert.